Dr. Lynch and Dr. Densed, members and guests, uh, thank you for me allowing to present the take-home messages. I have a disclosure. I asked Twitter for help. It's not because I'm lazy or I'm cheating. I'm just a resourceful millennial. Um, I'm going to talk about three different uh, topics that uh, were pretty prevalent here at the AUA 2019, opiate reduction, radiation reduction, and laser technology. Uh, we have a, a study from Shog, Posada, and Dr. Eisner's group from Mass General showing that patients with a history of kidney stones received almost uh, twice as many narcotic use in the last 30 days compared to controls without any um, stone history. And this number increased as the number of kidney stones passed per, uh, in the history of the patient. Next, we looked at prescription opioid use among new stone formers from a, a Medicare study. And over 40% of patients that uh, had never had a stone before received a new opioid prescription. And this was in, uh, associated with an increased number of ED visits and kind of prompting us to think about timeliness of stone surgery in patients that we see. The same group also found, uh, looking at more uh, long-term opiate use, that 50% received a refill of opioids uh, in six months and 20% were still using opioids the following year. Looking at a study from Dr. Saeed, the risk of prolonged use among opioid-naive patients following stone surgery, independent of the type of stone surgery, whether they had a PCNL, ureteroscopy, or shockwave, 8% of patients that have never received an opioid continued to fill these prescriptions 90 days after their stone surgery. So that's the problem. The solution, um, there were many abstracts on trying to combat this problem. Dr. Portis presented a nice study of communicating with the emergency department and instituting a protocol for non-opioid opi opioid discharge prescriptions. And he saw that after implementation of this protocol that uh, there was a reduction in opioid use from the emergency room. Uh, intraoperatively, we can also uh, take measures to reduce the needs for opioids. So this is something I do in my clinical practice during ureteroscopy is to give a, a dose of Toradol based on weight near the uh, end of surgery. And uh, a study from Dr. Golan Van Rin demonstrated that these patients required uh, less morphine uh, equivalents. Uh, predictors for decreased morphine equivalents were that they received some intraop Toradol, increased age, and if they had surgery just on one side. Now we look at discharge after ureteroscopy. Um, you know, uh, generally narcotics uh, were in the pathway even you know three or four years ago. But now I've implemented in my own practice a non-opioid protocol for reducing opioid prescriptions, and this includes preoperatively potentially starting patients on acetaminophen or gabapentin, intraoperatively catorolac or a BNO suppository for stent discomfort in the bladder receiving medications in the recovery unit, and then discharging with an NSAID, an anticholinergic, and an alpha blocker. This is a study from uh, uh, Dr. Gridley's group at Vanderbilt. And after instituting this protocol, they dropped the number of uh, narcotic discharge prescriptions to zero um, and decreased the amount of refills as well. Moving on to reducing radiation doses. So this is a study from Dr. Canvasser from UC Davis, and he was uh, looking at following uh, stones just in the kidney and seeing if we could improve the windows of our standard CTKUBs to reduce the radiation dose. And he found that uh, for stone disease limited only to the kidney, the superior end plate of T11 to the inferior end plate of L5 provide a, a sizable reduction in scan length and radiation dose to follow these patients. Obviously, stones in, in the distal ureter and bladder are not picked up on this uh, protocol.
Turning to fluoroscopy versus ultrasound guided percutaneous nephrolithotomy in upper calyx access, this is a study from uh, Dr. Tenadir from Turkey, found that fluoroscopy time and operation time were shorter in the ultrasound uh, guided group and complications were similar. And for those of you uh, thinking about using ultrasound guided, uh, the, the recommendation is to start with a hybrid approach using ultrasound and fluoro and then potentially converting to ultrasound guided only. There are some uh, interesting studies on, on new frontiers with robotics. Dr. Aro presented a robotic 3D ultrasound guided targeting for percutaneous renal access using uh, ultrasound and robotic machine and uh, targeting ultrasound images on a model and uh, with pretty good accuracy and uh, they were able to achieve calocele entry on the first try with this robotic system. This is from Dr. Chi's group, Dr. Armin Fan from UCSF, looking at can we dilate uh, the percutaneous renal tract under ultrasound guidance alone? And, and they found that once the wire was placed, you could easily see the balloon tip here, and then while dilating, what you were looking for is uh, loss of the signal of the wire. Uh, it was equivalent to fluoroscopic dilation, safe and effective. And, uh, but we do need ultrasound-specific dilators uh, if we're uh, going to continue with this to increase the signal-to-noise ratio to confirm that we are in the calyx and, and dilating appropriately. This is some of my favorite work out of the University of Washington, Dr. Maxwell and Sorensen, about burst wave lithotripsy. And we've heard a lot about it over the last six years here. Um, and I'm going to present some studies they've done in vitro and on porcine models. This is a, a video representation of burst wave lithotripsy. So burst wave lithotripsy is uh, different than shockwave lithotripsy in that shockwave lithotripsy uh, produces consecutive fragments from each fragment, whereas in burst wave lithotripsy, it's more of a chipping away at the stone. Now this is an ultrasound uh, probe that could potentially be done in the office with short uh, bursts of ultrasound. They find they were uh, they sought to see how stones were fragmenting, um, and at different frequencies, they, they found that guided wave generation and reflection were the mechanism of stone fracture and burst wave lithotripsy, performing a grid of oscillating stress points as the stone was slowly broken down. And in a porcine study, they found that uh, the fragments that resulted were less than two millimeters, and histopathologic analysis demonstrated no parenchymal. Uh, injury and uh, human trials will be starting this year, so something to look forward to for AUA 2020. Next, the thulium fiber, uh, a very hot topic uh, item during this conference. So, the thulium fiber is different than our standard holmium fibers in that it has a diode uh, generator and the thulium doped fiber with a standard surgical fiber emanating from the machine. Uh, it's a smaller set top box that can be plugged into any 120 volt outlet. Uh, thus reducing the need for 240 volts. Uh, you can use smaller laser fibers, 50 to 150 micron, very low energy in terms of millijoules, and a higher maximum uh, frequency, up to 2,000 hertz. Dr. Uh, Traxer and Dr. Drogos presented uh, a comparison of Holmium Moses technology versus the superpulse thulium fiber, which is more efficient. And uh, when using standard settings, they found it had a similar effect, but when they ramped it up to the maximal dusting settings of each machine, they found that the uh, superpulse thulium fiber was more efficient in that it uh, ablated three times the stone volume than the standard Moses technology. Dr. Chu and Dr. Knudsen looked at comparing dusting and fragmenting using the new superpulse thulium fiber. 
Uh, and then it was more efficient at dusting and fragmenting, so across the settings it was more efficacious. And for fragmentation, there was less number of fra uh, uh, fragments, larger pieces, which resulted in less passes with your basket. They also showed that there was less retropulsion and less fiber burnback. So there's a, a lot of appealing elements to the new thulium fiber laser. When we talk about these higher energies that we reach, we have to be concerned about temperature. Um, and when comparing direct um, power settings to, from the superpulsed thulium fiber to the holmium fiber, they found that the temperature rise was similar and had a similar effect on tissue. But in general, we should be wary of the temperatures we may generate, especially in the ureter in a more contained area. Uh, this is a study from Duke, and Dr. Winship demonstrated that at one point, uh, the water was boiling, and we could potentially cause uh, circumferential damage to the ureter with a potentially uh, ureteral stricture. Uh, again, this study didn't have a heat sink with continuous irrigation, but it's something to be mindful of as we reach more higher powers in our lasers. And this is a study that looked at ACGME case logs. So for the residents uh, in the crowd, endourology uh, is only becoming you know, more prevalent in training and in clinical practice. As, and they looked at four ACGME categories. So only endoscopic cases had a significant change, which was driven by a steady increase in ureteroscopy. So as our technologies increase for ureteroscopy, we end up doing more ureteroscopy. And a lot of studies show that it, it, will be, it is the predominant management of stones. So what am I looking forward to at AUA 2020? Uh, I didn't touch on this, but more uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and endourology. And then dissemination and cost of the thulium fiber laser and uh, wide, more widespread use uh, using less radiation, more ultrasound, and potentially performing radiation-free stone surgery, and the impact of what we're doing with the opioid reduction in stone disease and seeing if we can chip away at this epidemic that uh, is overcoming our nation. Thank you very much. All right, good afternoon, and uh, thank you for allowing me to review some of the highlights from uh, transplantation and vascular surgery uh, sessions this year. We had uh, one podium and uh, two moderated poster sessions in addition to a video session, and then uh, happening uh, right now, the Urologic Society for Transplantation and Renal Surgery, room 192, if anyone's interested, that's going on until 5 p.m. I'll uh, bring in some highlights from that as well. I have no disclosures. So to start off, we'll look at highlights in living donation. An area that hasn't received much attention is uh, depression in uh, kidney donors. Um, and so this was a statewide analysis uh, from a group in New York, uh, looked at a five-year period uh, pre and post donation and uh, collected uh, uh, diagnoses of uh, uh, depression. So they found a 9.2% incidence of depression prior to donation and a 13.3% incidence post-donation uh, with the uptick just after uh, donation uh, being most pronounced. So the key predictor of depression post-donation was a pre-donation diagnosis, again an area uh, ripe for uh, further research. Uh, a group from Korea uh, created a nomogram for predicting chronic kidney disease, uh, stage three for uh, those undergoing living donor nephrectomy. Um, and they looked at uh, GFR at six months uh, post-donation. What they found, uh, that some of which has previously been shown, age, gender, pre-op, GFR, and smoking, all risk factors. Some uh, more unique ones, uric acid and LDL, also risk factors for development of stage three kidney disease post-donation. I would encourage anyone that uh, works up living donors to look at these nomograms. There's some great online calculators as well. 
additional abstract on living donation. This one uh, involved hyperfiltration, and uh, while this has been well studied in native kidneys and uh, transplant recipients, hasn't been looked at uh, as thoroughly in donors. So uh, what they, uh, this group did from Korea is evaluate all donors uh, uh, who um, uh, donated at their institution, all of which had less than 150 milligrams of protein per 24 hours, and they looked at them post-operatively, divided them into two groups, uh, those that excreted less than 150 milligrams in their urine per 24 hours and those that were greater than that. Uh, hypo and hyperfiltration. And what they found is that post-donation hyperfiltration was a predictor of uh, a lower GFR at one year. They also found that male gender and older age were associated with uh, decreased uh, functional recovery. Always an interesting uh, topic, I think, in transplant is uh, how do we increase the uh, deceased donor and uh, living donor pool. So uh, this one was one of my uh, favorite abstracts uh, from this year's sessions. Um, what uh, this group from Canada did was they uh, uh, looked at this concept of functional warm ischemia time. So uh, just as a reminder, warm ischemia time uh, for donation after cardiac death is when you withdraw life support, most often extubation, and then that clock starts at that point and goes until flush um, of, the, uh, of the aorta. Most uh, centers have cutoffs anywhere between 60 and 120 minutes. Canada's at 120 minutes. So what this group uh, did was uh, look at the concept, again, functional warm ischemia time defined as less than uh, 50 millimeters of uh, mercury systolic blood pressure in the donor, and then that's when the clock started. So when they looked back at their 350 uh, DCD kidney donors, they found that 97% uh, of them all had a functional warm ischemia time of less than 30 minutes. Now if you were to liberalize that criteria and bump it out to four hours rather than the two-hour cutoff, they found an additional uh, 23 potential donors. Um, so really, I think the take-home message from this is that we really need to pay close attention to the hemodynamics um, in DCD donors. Another interesting presentation on increasing the donor pool, this one was uh, given about 20 minutes ago at the uh, USTRS meeting. Uh, this one was uh, by Dr. Veal uh, from Los Angeles, and uh, it, the concept has been presented uh, before, but I think this is a really large untapped pool. About 25% of transplant recipients die with a functioning allograft, and so uh, he reviewed uh, three cases of retransplantation. Essentially, the kidney's been put in one recipient, and then it is removed from that recipient, and it transplanted into a, a second recipient. So there's three cases there. Prompt reuse, uh, where the kidney is removed within days uh, after the initial transplantation. Um, there's delayed reuse, where it's recovered years after uh, the initial transplantation event. And then there's also a situation where you have recurrent disease, such as FSGS, happening aggressively in the immediate post-op period, and then you would transplant that into another recipient. All three of these cases uh, demonstrate that there's really no uh, logistical framework at this point in time to uh, facilitate these uh, forms of uh, transplant, and that uh, as a transplant community, we really need to be looking for uh, these opportunities to reuse uh, previously transplanted kidneys. An interesting article on obesity uh, and transplantation uh, from Brazil. Uh, in the transplant community, there is a little bit of a movement to try to transplant patients with higher BMI because we know that survival uh, on dialysis is quite low. Uh, so uh, this uh, kind of uh, reminds us of the consequences of that potentially. So they reviewed 2,000 patients, found a two-fold increase in wound complications for every five-point increase in BMI. What this looks like graphically here, if you look at a BMI of 40 and you look at all forms of wound complications listed on the right there, about 45% uh, risk of wound complications for those uh, transplant recipients with a BMI of 40. So basically every other person you're transplanting at that BMI, super high risk. 
Uh, Robotic-assisted kidney transplantation, uh, definitely the most popular topic uh, this year, um, and I'd like to highlight a couple of uh, abstracts that were presented. Uh, the first one out of Spain, uh, looking at uh, 50 robotic-assisted kidney transplants, comparing those to uh, matched uh, uh, similar open cases. Uh, they found that operative times were longer in robotic-assisted kidney transplant uh, compared to open. Transfusion rates were lower in the robotic-assisted. There was no difference in the uh, length of stays or of any functional outcomes, such as serum creatinine post-op. Uh, they did find lower rates of wound complications uh, compared to open, and interestingly, uh, I like that they reported costs. They noted that the cost in robotic-assisted kidney transplant was higher uh, than open. A second series uh, from India uh, looked at 60 robotic transplants and compared those to open as well, and important to note the differences between the group. The robotic group had a higher BMI. Uh, what they found was a longer warm ischemia time in the robotic group um, and a decreased uh, need for analgesia requirements in the robotic group, as well as a lower risk of uh, wound complications, so uh, potentially an area uh, for utilization of robotic kidney transplant in these patients with higher BMI. Uh, two interesting videos on robotic kidney transplantation. The first one uh, from Cleveland uh, was looking at using the uh, SP uh, surgical system, uh, and this was a, uh, a, ca a cadaver model, so they used a fresh male uh, cadaver uh, just to approve uh, a, a concept uh, of this procedure, and they used standardized steps of the uh, robotic multi-arm uh, uh, kidney transplant. They found the total OR time was very reasonable, 180 minutes, and that includes the 35 minutes of bench time, so that's, that's very impressive. And then they suggested this could be uh, quite helpful for multi-quadrant surgery, such as renal autotransplant. Another interesting video uh, out of Michigan, um, looking at the use of uh, the robot to assist uh, with transplant ureteral strictures. And uh, I thought a nice technique that they showed here was that you put the nephrostomy tube into the renal allograft, then you can inject ICG or Firefly down the ureter, and uh, you can see it really nicely. Um, one of the harder parts of a reimplant is, you know, finding finding the ureter, particularly with a robot. So they also used ureteroscopy in an integrated fashion to assist. So nice trick there. Now, kidneys weren't the only thing that urologists were busy transplanting this past year. Uh, so a group here uh, from United Kingdom um, uh, looked at four patients who had uh, recurrent um, extended spectrum beta-lactamase urinary tract infections and uh, performed uh, fecal transplants on them. And again, uh, more of a proof of concept study with only four patients. Two of them were transplant recipients, though. And what they found was that uh, two of them had decreased uh, UTIs over the following six months, uh, none there, and then uh, the rest had one uh, well, that was a lower uh, there are less, uh, more sensitive um, bacteria, and then the second one had a shorter hospitalization stay. So it clearly needs more evaluation, and that's um, uh, underway. Uh, we'll finish off by talking about ways to improve recipient outcomes. This uh, abstract uh, from Japan, uh, looking at uh, early uh, blood transfusion after kidney transplant. As transplant surgeons uh, were concerned about uh, exposure to blood transfusions for risk of uh, sensitization and uh, hurting future chances at transplant. And what they found is that in the early transplant period, you actually didn't increase the risk uh, for de novo antibodies. Um, so a nice uh, point uh, there. Uh, also, uh, another study from uh, Japan looking um, at at new onset diabetes, which uh, can affect up to 30% of transplant recipients. Uh, and what they used, uh, this uh, kind of developed a new uh, idea here in the transplant community, was uh, looking at living donor transplant recipients without diabetes, and they took a cross-section of a CT uh, at the umbilicus and then calculated uh, the body fat area. And about 13% of these uh, living donor transplant recipients developed diabetes, and they found that the body fat area was more predictive than either BMI or abdominal circumference in predicting uh, new onset diabetes. 
And for the final uh, abstract, I'd like to uh, highlight, uh, this was the winner of the uh, second moderated uh, poster session uh, this morning. Uh, this was from Cleveland, uh, uh, Ohio, and it was just looking at improving uh, handoff, essentially, um, and follow-up for uh, patients undergoing kidney transplantation. Essentially, what they did was uh, reviewed uh, their uh, transplant population uh, for the past three years, and they had implemented a new strategy uh, involving uh, better handoffs from the inpatient to the outpatient setting, as well as uh, provider phone calls uh, occurring the day after discharge, and then earlier uh, clinic follow-up uh, visit. And what they found was that with the implementation of this strategy, they were able to decrease their 30-day readmission rates from 23% to 13%, which any hospital would take that. That's fabulous. They also uh, found uh, a nice, um, uh, basically, resolution of a gap uh, between African Americans and Caucasians in terms of readmission rates. That uh, the discrepancy was previously there uh, before institution of this. So, uh, those are the highlights. Uh, thank you, and safe travels home.